This is MIT Technology Review. Where do you think COVID-19 came from? I definitely know it didn't come from like a man-made lab because that's kind of a conspiracy. I think COVID probably came from some kind of outbreak from a bat or an animal or something like that. Maybe a lab, I don't know. I don't know where COVID came from. I, I think that it may have come from an animal in a food market. I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about where it came from. I just think about how, we're, how we cope with it. I have no idea where it came from. Uh, I really don't know. The only thing I can imagine is maybe a mistake in a laboratory, but I don't think it was done on purpose. Where do you think COVID came from? COVID came from China. It was in a book written way before this. It was in a lab created in China. I think it started in China. I think it was Wuhan myself <laughs> as well, but I mean, who knows? I think COVID came from a lab. I think it's important to get to the bottom of it, but more important to learn to live with it so that we can continue to move forward. It's two years into the pandemic now. We've had lockdowns, vaccines, and arguments about how to move forward and live with this virus. We've watched the pandemic through numbers and data and memorials to the lives lost. The websites report the deaths, 1,000 a day, 2,000, up 5% and down 10%. And we're still arguing over where and why COVID-19 began in the first place, because scientists are still hunting for the definitive clues. What's not in dispute is the human cost. So the National COVID Memorial Wall in central London is, is essentially an unauthorized mural. It's graffiti, if you like. And it's 130,000 pink hearts that have been painted onto the wall by people who've lost relatives. This is Natasha Loder. She's the health policy editor for The Economist in London. And when you stand back from this wall, it just looks pink. And as you get closer and closer, you see and start to resolve all the different little individual hearts. And you read the inscriptions to aunts, to uncles, to fathers, to mothers. Natasha, like me, like science journalists everywhere, has been forensically following the story of this virus through all its twists and turns. But early in the pandemic, this also became a personal story for her. So you and I chatted early in the pandemic in March of 2020. My uncle died, my uncle Will. He was one of the first or in the first wave of COVID deaths in the United States. And, and at that time, you told me that you had an aunt that was in the hospital and she died as well, didn't she? Yes. So my aunt went into hospital on March the 16th and she died on the 20th. That was fast. It was very fast. We spent the first three days not even knowing it was COVID. It wasn't until the evening that she died that she got her positive COVID test. We wanted to leave this memento of her. And in fact, it was actually right outside the hospital, this wall is, and right outside the hospital, she died as well. It really became really quite overwhelming because you know your loss is then magnified by the others and it's quite daunting. I still find it an emotional experience trying to absorb all those you know lives that have been lost. When you were there with your mother, I mean did your thoughts turn to the big picture, not just the individuals but to this question of what caused all these deaths? Was that in your mind as well? 
No, not really. I think it wasn't until I had written a big piece for The Economist. I mean, this is a perpetual subject that I had been writing about. Prior to that, it had been just a really fascinating scientific story. And I, you know, I think you would get this, Antonio, you know, the sort of the thrill of what is both a sort of scientific and a political story and a mystery (laughs) wrapped in all sorts of intrigue. But I think after I had been to that wall, it kind of really brought it home to me, seeing one death magnified on such a large scale. I kind of made that connection with that in my piece. And I was like, okay, this is really, really important. You wrote that there's a moral imperative to try and answer the question of where COVID comes from. You said it's a matter of principle. So unpack that for me. What is the moral imperative? What is the moral imperative? Yeah. Well, the principle is that until we really understand what happened, we can't take the actions we need to prevent it from happening again. And so we've known that the risk of pandemics has been growing. And there could be a COVID-22 or a COVID-25 coming down the line. And, you know, if we really care about all these people who've died and to try and think about how we can do better for, you know, the people who are left behind, for the people who are gone, you know, how can we learn from these lessons? And you can't learn from history if you don't know what your history is, if your history is buried. It's the most scrutinized organism in the history of organisms. This virus, SARS coronavirus 2, has been sequenced more than 8 million times, more often than the human genome, more than HIV. We're in the age of powerful genetic microscopes. Even an at-home test can find the virus in your nose. And yet it can feel like we're no closer to finding out where this virus comes from. This is Curious Coincidence, a show about the two-year search for the origins of COVID-19. I'm Antonio Regalado. The origin search has been a duel between two competing narratives. The first, that the virus spilled out of an animal market in Wuhan. As Natasha mentioned, that's the zoonosis theory, diseases that spread from animals to humans. Many scientists agree it's the most likely cause. But there is another theory for where COVID came from, a lab accident in China's leading coronavirus research institute. The idea that it may have accidentally leaked out of a lab in Wuhan, China, is under increased scrutiny. The virus was man-made in a lab in Wuhan, China. This question about the Wuhan lab, we know that it's been debunked that this virus was man-made or modified or anything like that. To say that the theory that it came out of the lab was debunked is just not correct. It's been branded a conspiracy theory, but the lab accident hypothesis is still very much in play. It's the belief that a mishap or an accident by scientists released the COVID-19 germ into the city of Wuhan home to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the site of China's first top security germ lab. It became famous when its scientists chased down the origin of the first SARS virus, which broke out in 2003. They traced that coronavirus to bat caves in southern China, and they kept returning to those caves to collect more samples, bring those back to Wuhan, and discover even more of these viruses. And that is the curious coincidence. China's leading coronavirus research center is in the same city where the outbreak began. 
I first saw the phrase curious coincidence in a tweet by a well-regarded scientist named Vineet Menacheri. It was New Year's 2020, one day after China first acknowledged the outbreak, but even before the virus had been named or formally identified. It's the earliest mention of a possible lab accident that I've been able to find. He said he didn't think it was likely that this was a lab-associated infection, but he tweeted, the location makes it a curious coincidence. Since then, though, we've come across many other surprising coincidences in trying to uncover the origins of this virus. Mysteries wrapped in intrigue, as Natasha Loder says. In this podcast, we're gonna work our way through those mysteries and omissions, the facts and the evidence, to try and find out why the history of COVID-19 is so hard to uncover. Let's start with the natural origins theory, the idea that the virus jumped from a bat to another animal and then to humans. Many scientists say this is likely to be the way COVID-19 began, in an animal market in Wuhan. And this is the default theory. Scientists from the World Health Organization have arrived in the Chinese city of Wuhan to investigate the origins of the coronavirus pandemic. This morning, a team from the World Health Organization finally doing fieldwork in Wuhan, a year after the alarm was first raised here. The team of international scientists who landed in Wuhan last year included virologists, ecologists, and food safety experts. They had the broad expertise to hunt for the origins of the virus. But the visit only came about after complicated negotiations. The WHO mission to Wuhan took months of negotiation to agree with the Chinese government. And the group was criticized for having members with substantial conflicts of interest. They weren't free to wander the city or to collect data. It was more like a chaperone visit. Their job was to hear what evidence their counterparts in China had already collected. They traveled in a motorcade of gray cars, visiting different sites in the city. Security was tight everywhere that they went. They visited the Huanan Seafood Market. Early on, it was traced to this wet market, now shuttered up, where wildlife was sold as food. Finding out more from those who were there may prove difficult. A disinfection company that sanitized Huanan Market told us, these days we aren't allowed to talk. They visited a hospital, and then... Fog shrouded the Wuhan Institute of Virology this morning as the World Health Organization team arrived for their much-anticipated visit. A crowd of reporters greeted the gray motorcade as it pulled up outside the lab. The team spent a month in Wuhan. They reviewed and debated the evidence on the origins. And then they announced their findings in a press conference. Ladies and gentlemen, dear friends, good afternoon. Welcome to the press conference of Joint Expert Team of China WHO SARS-CoV-2 Origin Research. The mission was led by Peter Ben and Barrick. He's a Danish food scientist and expert on outbreaks. The international team would like to recognize the impact of the epidemic on the city of Wuhan from the individuals affected, the communities affected, both from the governments, the officials. The team had tried to answer two questions. When did the outbreak start? And how did it happen? Right away, one big clue was obvious. COVID-19 was caused by a type of bat virus. And the reason that we know that, that's because of the pioneering work done by the scientists based in Wuhan, who had gone searching in bat case for years and discovered similar germs. All the work that has been done on the virus and trying to identify its origin continue to point towards a natural reservoir of this virus and similar viruses in bat population. 
But how did this bat-like virus get to the city of Wuhan from a faraway cave? The first hypothesis, direct transmission, from a bat to a person. But since Wuhan is not a city or an environment close to these bat environments, a direct jump from bats to the city of Wuhan is not very likely. And therefore, we have tried to find what other animal species were introduced and moving in and out of the city that could have potentially introduced or contributed to introduce the virus, in particular in the Huanan market. This is the next hypothesis, that an intermediate animal brought the virus to Wuhan. And there was evidence pointing that way. Many of the first human cases from December of 2019 were connected to the Huanan seafood market, right in the center of the city. A mix of animals, snakes, bamboo rats, hedgehogs, raccoon dogs, marmots and badgers, all kept in poor conditions. It's exactly the type of situation that would give a virus the chance to spread. Our initial findings suggest that the introduction through an intermediary host species is the most likely pathways and one that will require more studies and more specific targeted research. This was the preferred hypothesis of the WHO team. Likely to very likely, they said. But they acknowledged that there were problems with the theory. The first was that the Chinese teams never found the virus in any animal. They tested 50,000 ducks, pigs, and even 1,000 bats in the area and across China. If there was an outbreak in market animals, it didn't leave a clear trace. But wait, what about that second big clue, those early human cases? Because if you could find patient zero, the mystery of the origin would practically be solved. Was it a wild animal trader? Was the first patient the grandmother of a lab worker? That cluster of cases connected to the animal markets might have been a smoking gun. But there was a problem with that too, a problem in the genome of the virus. Think of a virus as a malicious computer code. It's not really alive. Instead, it's a genetic script that exists to hijack cells and to make copies of itself so that it can spread. And the code of this virus, its genome, is 30,000 genetic letters long. It's clever, it's compact, and as we know, it's deadly effective. It's also always mutating. This virus was already evolving and changing, even at the beginning. And those changes to the virus tend to build on one another. Virus version B has all the changes present in virus version A, and then some. Think of a branching tree with virus twigs connecting back to virus branches and then back to the trunk. It happens in a way that turns the genome into a trail back through time that scientists can follow. When mapping all the initial cases over time throughout December and combining that with genetic sequences and genetic information from some of these cases, we could see that picture becoming more and more clear of a spread within the market and spread outside the market. Inside and outside the market. And that was a problem. Some of those early human cases, they had COVID-19 genomes that were a little bit different than the ones linked to the market. A little different and a little earlier, according to the evolutionary tree scientists had built at that time. So maybe the virus had started elsewhere, but only been discovered when it blew up at the market. It is likely that Huanan seafood market acted as a focus for transmission of the virus. But there are also transmission appearing to have the occurrence elsewhere in Wuhan at the same time. This is our basic judgment. 
it is not possible on the basis of the current information to determine how SARS-CoV-2 was introduced into the Huanan market. Since then, some scientists believe the market case has only become stronger. But at the time, the failure to connect the outbreak to the market with certainty meant that another uncomfortable theory still needed to be considered. A lab accident. Except the WHO team said they decided a lab accident was extremely unlikely. So unlikely, they said, that they didn't want to study it any further. The leader of the Chinese contingent of the Origins team explained why. Here's Professor Liang Wanyan speaking through a translator. There may be a leak of the virus from the lab, but in terms of the leaking of the virus, it should be leaking of an existing or no virus. However, in all the laboratories in Wuhan, there is no existing virus of SARS-CoV-2. You can't leak a virus that you don't have, right? Case closed on the lab accident theory. Except it wasn't. The WHO report landed like a lead balloon. Within the scientific community, the backlash was swift. This idea that the scientific consensus was that a lab accident was extraordinarily unlikely and a natural zoonosis was extremely likely. I think that was, was many people's view of what the scientific consensus was. That didn't match my personal view of things. And I, I certainly knew there were other scientists uh, for whom that also did not match their view. This is Jesse Bloom. He's a researcher in Seattle who studies the evolution of viruses. I'm a professor at the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center and an investigator with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. After the WHO report was released, Bloom helped organize a letter that appeared in the journal Science. And it took aim at the World Health Organization's study. The two theories had not been given balanced consideration, the letter said. And it called for public health agencies and research laboratories to open their records to the public something that still hasn't happened. I felt like it was important to write this letter, you know, which is sort of an odd thing because obviously the letter doesn't answer the question. The letter doesn't provide any new information that wasn't already available. But what the letter does is it's just a statement by, you know, myself and other scientists that we think this is still an open question. We think that more information or investigation is needed. And, you know, it expresses the view that certainly I have that this is not like a a closed, a closed question here. And, you know, having a better understanding of how this pandemic emerged, regardless of how it emerged, I mean, that can only help us understand and prevent future pandemics. Here were prominent scientists saying the lab leak theory could not be dismissed, not without more information. The signers of this letter included Ralph Barrick, the top coronavirus researcher in the world. Also, David Relman, a Stanford biologist who advises the government on biosecurity, and Mark Lipsitch, a prominent epidemiologist at Harvard. It was a bombshell. At the time, I was just so surprised that scientists were ruling it out just immediately with barely any information. It was just a gut feeling as a scientist that something was wrong. After the break, the junior researcher who helped light the fuse. You can find links to our reporting in the show notes, and you can support our journalism by going to techreview.com slash subscribe. Support for this podcast comes from MIT Technology Review's Pandemic Technology Project. It's funded in part by a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. Compete with compute. The technologies that power business are becoming smarter and faster than ever before. 
Join MIT Technology Review and experts from AMD, Google, Akamai, and more for our third annual Future Compute Conference, May 3rd and 4th, on the MIT campus in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Full details at futurecomputemit.com. Here at the corner of Ames and Main Street in Kendall Square, we're at the, we're at the shores of the MIT campus, and on the other shore is probably the largest biotech cluster in the world. I often bring guests who come visit me in MIT, I bring them to this corner, actually, to this crosswalk, and I like to stand in it because I say this is sort of the center of the biotech universe. Also nearby is Moderna, the inventor of the mRNA vaccine that I actually got. I can see Novartis, the research headquarters of Novartis, just in the distance. There's the Whitehead Institute and, of course, the Broad Institute. It's one of the largest academic research enterprises anywhere. It's the center of DNA sequencing, and we're here to see a postdoc named Alina Chan. Alina Chan is a molecular biologist. She's Canadian and grew up in Singapore. Now she works at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she's a postdoctoral fellow specializing in gene therapy. But what she is famous for is calling for investigations into China's labs and their possible role in the origin of COVID-19. At the time, I was just so surprised that scientists were ruling it out just immediately with barely any information. I, it was just a gut feeling as a scientist that something was wrong. Alina was behind that letter scientists wrote, and she's co-authored a book, Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. She has persistently been asking questions and stirring doubts since the beginning of the pandemic. When I noticed that there were so many differences between SARS-1 and SARS-2, that's when I got slightly suspicious that it might have come from a lab. So I wanted to list it down as at least one possibility in the preprint. On May 2nd of 2020, Chan went public with a preprint. That's a study that hasn't been peer-reviewed. It was about the early spread of the virus, and she put the lab accident theory back on the table. She wrote that scientists needed to consider the lab scenario, regardless of how likely or unlikely. And there's absolutely a single line in the preprint that says that, next side by side with many other natural scenarios. So that got picked up, and then I got sucked into it. What she got sucked into was a battle of narratives. And it didn't matter that no one would publish her preprint. One scientist I spoke to said, well, it wasn't that convincing. But Chan had the credibility to put the lab leak theory front and center, because she had Twitter. She became a master of the medium, complete with silly videos, sharp observations, and detailed threads. By the start of 2021, she was briefing investigators for the U.S. State Department. She had distilled her message to the top 10 suspicious things that she'd noticed. And that list didn't even include the most obvious coincidence of all. It's like the greatest irony on earth that this lab that's been studying SARS for the past decade has a SARS outbreak right at their doorstep. That doorstep, of course, belongs to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That lab was studying very similar viruses to SARS-2, had gone to caves and places where people were in a SARS spillover zone, had been found to possibly have SARS infection. So, yeah, I'd say that that's a pretty big coincidence. <laughs> But there was another clue that made Chan suspicious, and that had to do with the virus itself. I think that it might be engineered. Scientists engineer viruses all the time, 
They add genes, they delete them, and they revise the genome in ways that suit their needs. Now, this virus does not have made-in-a-lab stamped on its genome, but it does have one feature that could be the sign of human handiwork. That's called the furin cleavage site. That's a small addition to its genome that makes it easier for a virus to infect a cell. The furin site was unusual and very interesting. It's not something usually found in this family of viruses, except it is the kind of thing that scientists sometimes add, say, to make a virus more transmissible. So is the furin site a smoking gun of a lab origin, or did nature just find a way, as it so often does? That debate continues. But what caught Chan's attention is that the lab in Wuhan didn't mention the furin site. And that, she thinks, is strange. In fact, Alina's signature comment on Twitter is to point out that if you discovered a unicorn, it would be weird not to mention that it had a horn. The Wuhan Institute was among the first to sequence the genome of the new germ in 2020, and it published the details in the scientific journal Nature. But the information about the furin cleavage site wasn't in that paper. Sometimes the covering up produces more evidence than the actual accident itself. So one of the things that really stood out to me was the omission of the furin cleavage site. They missed that functional feature. They characterized everything else extremely carefully. They even compared it directly to SARS-1 in the spike. They pulled out all these other tiny insets and talked about them, and they missed like this huge functional site in the middle of the virus. So there are many of these things that you could find a relatively innocent explanation for if you, if you tried really hard. But the, just in summation of all of these things, it makes me think that people know more than they're letting on. But was the omission of the furin cleavage site really a suspicious sign of a cover-up? The Wuhan Institute of Virology told other scientists that no, they just missed it. And that's plausible too. With those kinds of insinuations, Chan has definitely made some enemies. Have you been intimidated? Yes, <laughs> from both sides. So it's not, not like only one side is intimidating me. Well, there have been threats of litigation. There have also been violent emails and lots of scary tweets. <laughs> I mean, it's gotten to the point, too, where like, people have seen the emails and things are like, maybe we should consider calling the police. But then nothing has happened. So like, I, I don't know what to do. So These threats are coming from people who you know or can look up or just yes. random people? At least, yeah, some of them are knowable. So they have an identity and, and I know them. Yeah. Uh-huh. Or some of them scientists? Not, not the violent ones. <laughs> the, the more civilized threats, the, the litigation threats. What is the basis for threatening you? Slander. For slander? Yeah. Are these emails coming from China? No, I haven't gotten... I mean, I've been targeted in a Chinese state media before, and that resulted in like swaths of, of Twitter users who type in Chinese, like slandering me on Twitter. Uh, they say lots of things. Usually the, the worst... Like, basically, they call me a race traitor. So, like, someone who is racist against herself, like, her own race. But this is what the internet does, is that people go crazy. Like, they, they try to drag you through the mud somewhere. But the first thing I do is, like, report them and block them. And then, like, Twitter takes care of them. I may know part of your answer to this, but can you give a probability? I mean, what is what is your... Pro- do you think it's 50% lab or do you think it's 99% lab? No, no, it's not 99. Don't worry, it's, it's not that high. I'm not, I'm not like, 
I'm not crazy. <laughs> How can you pitch such a high level of confidence, like such a high estimate? I mean, a lot of people do put percentages on their on their thinking. I mean, I mean aren't you aren't you actually convinced that it is a lab leak? No, no, sorry, I'm not. I, I'm not convinced. So, I know a lot of people are co- like calling me disingenuous and things like that. Like they they believe that I believe it's a lab leak. No, it's not. There are many days when I actually go through it in my mind that what if this is natural and I've like totally screwed over a whole bunch of scientists by calling for an investigation. There are many days when I think about that. So I, I sit with that a lot. I, I really do. I really have days when I'm just like, if this is a natural spillover, I've, I've done like something incredibly bad. What I understand now is why people don't even like to think about where COVID-19 comes from. Let's turn it back to Natasha Loder, who writes for The Economist and who you heard at the start of this episode. So you're saying that the history of COVID-19 has been has been buried. I mean, you've been reporting on the topic for a couple of years now. So where do you think that history went? Why don't we know it? It's fairly clear that the Chinese don't want to shed light on what happened. And you don't have to believe that there was a lab origin to think that the Chinese would want to cover this up. I mean, there is plenty of reasons to believe they would want to cover up a market origin as well. But again and again, we've seen them thwart efforts to really get a good answer. And, you know, we're still waiting for the data that the WHO asked for when its scientists went on that mission. It's just been difficult to get the information that we need from the Chinese. And it's not an accident. That's a very deliberate situation. Wow. Uh, big question then. Do you, what do you think the chances are that we'll f- learn the origin of, of the virus? Do you think there's any chance? Yes, I do. I think it's a, if it's a zoonotic source that over time, it's possible the Chinese may reveal more of the information that they have. And then also, let's not forget, we could quite easily make a connection between some of the bat colonies that exist in the southern China, in Laos, in Thailand, Vietnam, and the outbreak in Wuhan. And, you know, this region is really unexplored. We just haven't looked. It's quite likely they're carrying very closely related coronaviruses. And that would kind of help the connection as well, I think. So I think we can learn a lot more, and I think we will. Do you think that the public's trust in science has been shaken by all this? Has your trust in science been shaken? No, not at all. I mean, science has gotten us out of this pandemic. I mean, we've got (laughs) vaccines, we've got antiviral drugs. I would say there have been times when I've felt like I wanted scientists who are more closely involved in this to be a little bit more available. I think there's been a lot of harassment, certainly of scientists who are much more on the zoonotic side. I would say it became so politically heated that they were almost kind of cowering. Right. And this gets into the misinformation question because the hardcore lab leakers or the lab leak proponents are often very available. That's right. And if if so, the people, if the virologists are ducking, and I've had the same experience, it's very hard to reach them. And the, and the thing is, you know, and I'm 
you know, I'm intrigued by the lab leak theory and I spent lots of time talking to people who are advocates for it and I have plenty of time to listen to all these ideas. I've always said you've got to keep an open mind, just not so open that your brains fall out. On the next episode of this podcast, we meet the internet detectives and amateur sleuths who gathered on Twitter to launch their own unsanctioned investigation into the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It's the story of a deadly mine shaft, a dangerous virus, and a mysterious figure named the Seeker. But wait, we don't want your brains to fall out just yet. That's the next Curious Coincidence. Curious Coincidence is a production of MIT Technology Review. It's produced as part of our Pandemic Technology Project, which is supported by a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. The show was created by me and Jennifer Strong. The producers are Anthony Green and Lindsay Moscato, with help from Emma Silicons. The production manager is Luke Robert Mason. Our theme music was composed by Jacob Gorski, with original scoring and mixing by Garrett Lang. We're edited by Michael Riley, David Rotman, and Jennifer Strong. The executive producer of Curious Coincidence is Golda Arthur. I'm Antonio Regalado. Thanks for listening.